And Kyle, you can come up. Oh, scripture reading. Of course. I thought I had it. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, we're going to read the scripture. All right, so um, Luke number five, verse number 17. If you find that in your pew Bibles, that is uh, page 728. I'll give you guys a minute to find it in your Bibles and in your pew Bibles. All right, Luke number five, Luke chapter five, uh, verses 17 through 26. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat, mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, everybody. Ooh. Now, if I were to reference a six-hour version of Pride and Prejudice, how many people are following me here? Like, Okay, we've got a few people. So th this week I was introduced to a six-hour version of Pride and Prejudice. Um, and I have a Jane Austen scholar in the family, so it's very important that I watch closely and pick up on the names because they come up at the dinner table sometimes. Now, we're watching closely. I get a call um, during an important scene, and when I came back in... Um, yeah, everyone rewatched with me. The, the meeting of Mr. Wickham and Lizzie Bennet, since it's such an important scene. Mr. Wickham. Mr. Wickham is an interesting character. Um, when he met Lizzie at a party, uh, he spun a yarn. He, he talked about his past dealings with Mr. Darcy, um, how he had been wronged by him, and he garners Lizzie's sympathy. She believes his story. Um, now, in reflecting on this scene, it's hard to say whether he was seeking pity or some social advantage. Um, I'm not convinced that he hadn't deluded himself over the years from telling this self-centered narrative to sympathetic ears to the point where he really saw himself as a victim. What is clear upon Mr. Darcy's account, upon hearing that, is that there are some things that Mr. Wickham leaves out of some important information. And when you learn this information, your opinion changes about him as a character. And just looking at a few reviews online, a cad, a deceiver, seducer, scoundrel. These are some of the words that have been used to describe Mr. Wickham. I especially like the word that my, um, my wife used, a snake. A snake. 
He's airing his tail without accountability to the truth to parties that have no power to right the wrong. It's like sitting in vinegar long enough to become a pickle. Let me pause there. (laughs) Abrupt transition. In our series on prayer, (laughs) we're we're using the, the Lord's Prayer as our model. I mean, each sermon, we're pausing at each phrase in the Lord's Prayer and looking elsewhere in Jesus' ministry to understand what this phrase means. And we're bringing these lessons back into the Lord's Prayer and into a three-part model of prayer, which asks the questions, who am I, who is God, and now what? Who am I, who is God, now what? Our first sermon looked at Our Father in heaven, which sets the tone for the whole rest of the prayer. Because we come before God, not as a a servant, not as a stranger, but as a child. Then we looked at hallowed be your name, the call to worship God alone, God alone. And then we looked at your kingdom come, and this kingdom that's founded on justice and truth and love. Give us our day, our daily bread. The reality that we're dependent creatures that are held by a sustaining God. And today we'll consider the phrase, forgive us our trespasses or debts or sins. That phrase that always throws you off if you're in a new church. I think we say sins, right? The reality that we're debtors, that we have sins, that we need forgiveness. But there is grace through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, who am I, who is God, and now what? It's a familiar structure that you're all going to miss in two weeks when we change the series. Let me start by answering the question, who am I? Based on this petition, forgive us our sins, who are we? We're people in need of forgiveness. And if I infer from what came right before it in the prayer, give us today our daily bread, this is a prayer that applies to us every day. And so we can pray forgive us our sins every day. Now, I grew up in a church um, with subtle kind of revivalist tendencies. Um, Embedded in the service, there was an invitation after the sermon to to close your eyes, raise your hand, and pray the sinner's prayer along with the pastor. Um, A prayer that was scripted for for converts, people praying a confession for the first time. who heard the invitation to the gospel and wanted to pray. And, and I was about, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12, I raised my hand one week, and then the next week I raised my hand again, and the pastor made a comment, you only have to do this once. And I don't know if that told me something about confession, that it's a prayer you only pray once, but I remember getting to Gordon College, where I did my undergrad, and, and being exposed to some prayers that seemed to be prayed by, by the faithful, by the Christian, by the person who lives in a knowledge that Jesus has saved them. And they are still praying, forgive us our sins. So that became more familiar to me as I went to college. You know, I think one of the truest things that we can say about ourselves, when we approach God, one of the, the most foundational spiritual truths is that we are sinners. Not simply people that sin sometimes, I mean, this goes more to an identity place. This goes more foundational. That We are sinners, period. Not simply people that sin. We're sinners 
And sin impacts every area of our lives. Yes, the New Testament calls us saints, and, and Martin Luther wrote a whole treatise on, on the, the simultaneous nature of being a saint and a sinner at the same time. But make no mistakes. Make no mistake. You and I are sinners. When we stand before God, we are people in need of forgiveness. Now, a pastor, Richard Kaufman, says there's three ingredients to confession. Three ingredients. The first ingredient, he says, is, is owning up to sin. So here we're not minimizing. We're not justifying. We're not blaming others. Not being Mr. Wickham. We don't pray, Lord, forgive me for losing my temper, but you know that they deserved it. We're not praying, Lord, forgive me for not being honest, but let's be real. That's not the worst lie anyone's ever told. And who really got hurt? It was a white lie. Lord, forgive me for neglecting those who are in need, but, but you know I'm just trying to make ends meet. I mean, instead, when we confess to God, there's a hard stop after what we did. Um, Lord, forgive me for failing to keep my promise. Period. Lord, for, forgive me for harboring resentment toward others. Period. There's no explaining away. There's, there's taking accountability and responsibility, um, calling it by name, the name that God calls it, whether that's envy or hatred or lust or deceit, whatever it may be, acknowledging it for what it is without ifs, ands, or buts. And we can confess specifics, and, and I like a phrase that John Stott uses. He, he uses omnibus confession, which goes something like, Dear God, I am sorry for my sins. Amen. I am a sinner who sinned against a holy God, and I rest in the fact that Jesus is a savior for sinners like me. So that's the first ingredient to, to a confession, owning up to the sin. The second ingredient is a focus on God. It's God-centered rather than self-centered. I think that Tim Keller in this quote brings this out. He says, self-pity like repentance, oh, sorry, self-pity looks like repentance, but it is, in fact, self-absorption. And that is the essence of sin. Repentance begins where self-pity ends. There's a kind of false repentance that is excessive. The person is filled with loud and intense self-loathing, cries and tears. Listeners feel compelled to tell them that they aren't that bad, that they aren't that guilty. And that this is the very point of such self-flagellation. It tries to pressure others, and even God, not to accuse, but to excuse and pardon. The inner logic goes something like this. If I beat myself up enough, surely this will atone for my sin, and no one else will ask anything of me. We don't confess to achieve an end. I mean, maybe this is what I imagine Mr. Wickham would do if he entered a church to pray. But confession, true confession, is, is God-centered sorrow. Um, like Isaiah, this is a prayer of confession. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's important that we, we include that there because it's often in encountering God that we realize 
the weight of, of our sin. So we've got two ingredients. The third ingredient is a relying on grace. The third ingredient to a true confession is relying on grace. Sometimes people talk about, um, you know, confessing only when you're resolute to never engage in sin again. And I hear where they're coming from and wholeheartedly disagree. Um, my uh, confession isn't about putting more effort in. It isn't a prayer, God, I promise to try harder. It's about falling on grace. It's about having like a repentant heart. It's, confession is a spiritual discipline where, where we remember our need for grace. And the longer we abide in Christ, our view of that need for God grows. I mean, as we go and grow as Christians, we don't simply become better at playing by the rules. We become more aware of our need for God. So who am I? I'm a sinner in need of daily grace from God. Confession is prayer that recognizes our need for grace. Now, you may have noticed, I haven't referenced our supplemental passage yet, and, and our supplemental passage does not, in fact, involve a confession. Our supplemental passage um, involves no one seeking forgiveness, but forgiveness being extended anyway. Jesus forgives the paralyzed man his sins, and I think that only reinforces further who we are, and who God is. Who are we? We are sinners. We need forgiveness. Who is God? I mean, based on the petition in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, God is the one that entertains that petition for forgiveness. God is the one who can forgive sins. And it's fortunate for us that God is merciful. And there is a Savior who offers forgiveness and restoration to sinners. You know, there's a lot to affirm in this passage, in the Pharisees' hidden thoughts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, who can forgive sins? I mean, even um, in Catholic churches where priests hear confessions, there's a clear distinction between that, that word absolution of sins and forgiveness of sins. I mean, absolution is, is a formal declaration that a person is forgiven, but not by the authority of the, po of the priest, but by the authority of... Um, of, of Christ. Forgiveness is a personal act between people. And there it involves a wrongdoing. I'll get more, I'll, I'll, I'll get more into the definition of forgiveness in, in a little bit. But what we want to see in this passage is that Jesus is speaking for God here. In the ears of the Pharisees, this, this isn't the Day of Atonement. A sacrifice hasn't been made. The ritual practices that go with forgiveness haven't been satisfied. I mean, it's not the year of Jubilee, as far as we know. But what the Pharisees don't see, what they don't understand, what they miss, is that Jesus is an agent of God. And this power comes through his coming death his sacrifice that stands on behalf of this man. Jesus has the power to extend the gift of God's mercy through, through, his, own, um, through his own life. Now, another thing to see here is that this passage has a lot to do with power and a question of, of power. I mean, let's glance together at a few verses here. Verse 17 
at the end of it. It says, the power of the Lord was present for him, that is, Jesus, to heal the sick. In verse 21, I mean that question right at the end, who can, who's able to forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says in verse 23, um, I mean, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? In verse 24, these things are done so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus proclaims forgiveness of sins and, and demonstrates that authority with a miraculous sign. I, I mean, you'll notice that both of these things that Jesus does, right, are impossible. Um, I mean, these aren't humanly possible. Neither you or I have the power to forgive sins or the authority in and of ourselves to physically heal with the word of our mouth. Um, but what is interesting is, that, well, anybody can claim to forgive sins. Anyone can claim it. Healing is, is a lot harder to fake, right? I could declare all my income, ta income tax-free. Like, I, I could just declare it. I could say, I owe no taxes. Hooray! It doesn't mean it's true. I could tell a person with a criminal record, your slate is wiped clean. I mean, it doesn't mean it is. I could go into a hospital and say, get up and walk. I mean, the proof is if they actually did. I mean, it's a lot harder to, to fake the authority that comes behind a healing as miraculous as this. A paralytic that literally had to be dropped down through a roof by a group of men because he couldn't walk himself. And he, he stands up and carries his own bed at the end. I mean, that, this, that is a... Um, he's made a claim, and he makes another claim to verify the first, right? It's, I mean, you can't walk away... You can't help but walk away with this, from this without saying God is powerful, right? That this person was healed. I saw it with my own eyes. God's gracious and forgiving. And Jesus must be an agent of this God. I mean, so who is God? God is the merciful, the forgiver, the gracious judge who grants pardon. He's the, he's the one against whom we've rebelled, and he's the only one who can grant pardon. And a good thing that his will is that we would be free. Um, okay, so we've asked the first two questions. Who are we? We're sinners. Who is God? A savior. We turn to our final question, now what? What do we do with this? Now remember the first words of the Lord's Prayer set the tone for everything that follows. When we come to God in confession, we come as his children. First, we pray, our Father in heaven. And I think that actually the beginning half of this service really set the, set the tone for this same truth. There's a relationship, there's a context, and that is that we are children of God. I mean, maybe at first we come to God like the prodigal children saying, let me give up my birthright. Um, all I believe, all I belong, all, all I deserve is the garb of a servant. But, but even confession 
can, can take the tone of what we were talking about earlier this year as a cuddle prayer of, of coming to God in the context of, of that child-father relationship and, and just leaning in, knowing that there's embrace waiting for you. Confessing to God is, is much like apologizing to my wife for known issues. I, I mean, it's not sharing new information. It's about showing vulnerability and humility, which actually strengthens our relationship. It brings us closer. It's, it's about seeing that God doesn't cast us away, that he won't cast us away. Actually, that he continually wants you to open yourself up to him. So what do we mean when we say that we have forgiveness? I'm going to borrow from that same pastor. He gives three definitions, or three, he has three elements to his definition of forgiveness. When we confess, what does God do? I mean, the first is that forgiveness is a new beginning. I mean, this, in, in the Old Testament, we see phrases like, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. You see phrases like, he wipes the slate clean as far as the east is from the west. He remembers our sin no more. Now, now of course, God doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't forget. But he has made a determination not to dwell on our sin, but instead to think about Christ and Christ's righteousness. And, and that righteousness which, which covers us, that is what God chooses to see. The second thing forgiveness means is almost a state shift. Forgiveness is a release from a, a past of guilt and powerlessness to a radical freedom to forgive and serve others unconditionally. And I think we get this when we read the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I mean, we have to be careful here to not read that latter clause as conditional, Right? God's forgiveness is not conditioned on our actions. We have to interpret the Lord's Prayer in light of all of Scripture. Um, it's usually a good rule of thumb if there's ambiguity somewhere to look to a clearer passage to, to help interpret. He isn't saying we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. And, and he's not actually saying that the, the weight of the forgiveness is equal. Um, we don't forgive to the same degree God forgives us. Um, I, in fact, and in my experience, I think the Christian life works the other way around most of the time. I mean, consider Jesus' words to Mary Magdalene uh, or to, the, to the, the critics that came to him after um, Mary, he had interacted with and cast um, seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. He said, um, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I think this may be actually when, he, when she uh, anoints his feet with oil with her hair. I mean, there's something here that, that it's not about the magnitude of our sins. I think that it's about apprehending the reality and the bigness of our sin over time. When we go to confess before God, I think that there, there's a sense in which our eyes are drawn to the cross. And that is a big weight, a big cost. And, and that is what grace looks like. I mean, to know that God 
forgives you. Um, and to see that, I think that that has a transformative power. It, it's almost like uh, the parable of, of I mean, the, the person released of a great debt. Um, I think that sometimes later in life we, we, we rem- remember and we can see the, the weight or the bigness of that forgiveness. It's not, as though, it's not as though the act has changed, but our apprehension of it does change. Now, the last part of forgiveness, which I've already alluded to, is that forgiveness is based on a cross. I mean, the pastor who made these points was preaching from Isaiah. Uh, that point in Isaiah where, where Isaiah is made clean. I mean, the thing that removed Isaiah's guilt was coal that had touched his lips. This is coal that came from the altar, that altar that was used in animal sacrifice as a payment for sins of God's people. I mean, if you ask yourself, where does the power of animal sacrifice come from? It's not from the death of an animal. It's, it's that, that pointed forward to the, the sacrifice of Christ, that that was something that, that looked forward to the point in time where there would be a day where sins would be atoned for on the cross, where Jesus' body was given for anyone who believes. Now what? Now what is the question we're asking? Oh, that we would be a people that would confess. That we would be a people that would confess. Foundational to the Christian experience is confession. That we would develop a lifestyle of, of confessing our sins, of interrogating our attitudes and our behaviors, of cultivating a repentant heart. It's foundational. It doesn't mean it comes easy, but it is foundational. Tim Keller made the observation that fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves, but joy-based repentance makes us hate our sin. Joy-based repentance makes us hate our sin. Um, What is it that you see when you turn to God in confession? Because because of Jesus, there is mercy. What you can see when you look to the throne is a throne of grace. What we see in Scripture is that there is no condemnation for those in Jesus. God can do nothing but forgive every one of his children. It's been said that confession is a gamble on grace. But in the gospel, all risk is removed because forgiveness is based on a cross. I mean, doesn't that give you joy and relief and a sense of peace? I mean, joy of forgiveness, being forgiven. Joy because there's a new beginning. When we ask, now what? Uh, I mean, maybe it's the first time you've done it. Maybe you've done it every week every day sometimes since you were young. We're invited, we're bid to own up to our sin, to focus on God and his holiness and to fall on the grace that's offered through Jesus. Don't be like Mr. Wickham, airing his tale without accountability to the truth. 
to parties with little or no power to right what is wrong, growing more wretched in a world where forgiveness is not even possible, this internal world of his. In confession, we accept the world that on God's terms, um, and that means that through Christ you can live as a child of God, righteous only through Christ, alone, because we owned our wrongdoing, took it to the one who had the power to forgive, and we received our freedom. Praise be to God. What other response can we have? Now what? Praise be to God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace that goes before us. Um, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us as a God of forgiveness and mercy. We don't have to fear in coming to you even with the things that we might feel ashamed of. We don't have to fear because you're waiting to embrace us like a father embraces his child. I pray that we would keep our account short with you, that we would be quick to confess. And I pray that you would um, cultivate this repentant heart in this community um, as we turn to you together in Christ. Amen. Please stand as you're able and we'll respond in song.